0: We kind of generated this flywheel for ourselves that was really based on the network effect so like i said that first month we had 12 members i think by month three we had a member in moscow so we had to figure out how to ship internationally
1: hello and welcome to shopify masters the podcast powered by shopify your companion for starting and building a business i'm adam levinter there's truly nothing that rivals the nostalgic feeling of having your favorite album in the palm of your hands This is exactly what Vinyl Me Please co-founder Matt Fiedler thought back in 2012, just six years after music streaming giant Spotify had entered the market. Matt was craving a different way to experience music, one that was slower, tactical, and incorporated the social connection he admired. What he didn't know was how much of a hit this monthly vinyl subscription business would become. After just five years of bootstrapping, Finally, please brought in $11 million of top line revenue and accumulated nearly 30,000 subscribers on the platform. Matt joins us now to share his approach behind VMP's customer success and how he knew it was the right time to step away from the business. Matt, welcome to the show. It's always good to talk and see you. You've mentioned in the past is that VMP was founded around this important single question, which is, what if there are more people like us? Why was this the biggest question or the biggest building block that led to the success of this thing.
0: There was something missing from where the experience of consuming music was going. It was very obvious that there was, that streaming was the future, that it was all going to be kind of predicated on this, you know, paying for access versus ownership and and all of that. And we just couldn't believe that's all there was. Like we had had these experiences with music that were very meaningful to us that extended well beyond what we were hearing and it became a part of our identity and it it just didn't feel like that was the mountaintop that was the peak of the mountain streaming you know and so it was sort of a way to ground our curiosity and just giving us the opportunity to think about it in the most pure way possible of like what if there are people that want this type of experience like what would that look like what if there was more people like us what would we want you know from it and then how might we shape this to be something that's like really based on this idea of celebrating music and bringing people together in and around the experience of music being open and being curious and doing it in such a way that it was pure. Like we weren't thinking about the business model. We weren't thinking about, you know, can we make money from this? We weren't thinking about who's going to fund it or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like all of the things that, you know, someone might think about when they're starting a business, it was purely just an act of like genuine curiosity and a desire to authentically connect with people in and around music. And I think that's such a, you know, going back to the DNA part, like that's a core part of the DNA that still exists today. Like we still wonder what if there are more people like us. And despite the service being in 40 plus countries, 30 some thousand members or whatever, like it's still a question that we're constantly asking ourselves in addition to What are the other ways that we can explore music together? What are the other ways that we can facilitate journeys through music? Or if we're thinking about something, it's like, how might this help us do that? Or how might this create a connection that may otherwise
1: be overlooked? You know, it's interesting the way you talk about it, because it's kind of the anti-VC approach, I would say, which is so heavily focused on, you know, how big is the market? What is the TAM? How do we build something that scales? How do we build something that we can find product market fit quickly? All of these things, in a way, you are building something for the consumer by the consumer, (laughs) if you will. And to your point, I mean, there were many, many, many others like you guys. You launched with 12 paying members. Now, 10 years in, VMP has tens of thousands of members worldwide, I think in 40 plus countries around the globe. What are the factors in your words that you think contributed to the exponential growth that you saw beyond those first couple of years?
0: Yeah, I mean I think it's exactly what you're describing and that the antithesis of the VC model is is exactly how we approached building our business. And it was funny too cuz when we were raising money you know, I don't know, five or six years into the business. We got a lot of pushback because people were like, is this just a fad? What's the TAM? What's the real opportunity here? How big is the market? What are all the different ways that you can extend this model or do something different? Or what if you did it in books in addition to other collectibles? Like it's got to be more than just vinyl or more than just music or whatever. And I would just beat my head against the wall because I'm like, you're missing it. Like you don't get it. Clearly you don't understand who we are and what we're trying to do here. I mean, yes, it's a business. Yes, we're trying to grow. Yes, we're trying to, you know, drive results at the end of the day. But if we lead with that, like everything that makes it special gets lost. And I think the things that really allowed the business to be successful, you know, to the extent that it has, and particularly in the early days, was the fact that like we were, again, authentically trying to share great music with great people. And I think that came through in our packaging and the way that we approached, uh, the way that we designed that experience, the human touches that we put in to things along the way. It came in the way that we positioned ourselves. We were very transparent, very clear to say, hey, this is for this type of person. It's not for this type of person. You know, if you would rather this experience than you might be best served going somewhere else. But if you're open, if you're curious and you want to sort of go on a journey then you're welcome here. Look, come on in the water's warm. That type of thing. And I think that authenticity it just it was a magnet, right? It it, it attracted that first 12 paying members, it attracted the next 20, beyond that it attracted the next 100 beyond that and it really gave people something to like believe in, I guess in a way. So they couldn't help but share it with their friends. They couldn't help but talk about it. If they had a record and they had people over at their homes, they'd they'd be gushing. and be like, oh my gosh, you're never going to believe this thing that I just got from the service called Vinyl Me Please. It's super cool. I sign up. I get records every month. I, I've never heard of this band. I've never heard of this record or better yet, I thought I hated this band and I thought I hated this record, but when I got it and when I listened to it, I love it. It's like totally changed the way that I think about or whatever it might be. Like that type of experience is hard to manufacture in a and It's hard to communicate in a pitch deck. It's hard to estimate the size of the number of people that would really pay a premium for that type of experience. It's not about the dollars and cents. It's not about the numbers. It's not about all of the practical things that you might consider related to a business, although that is an important concern.
1: You know, you mentioned dollars and cents, certainly it wasn't about the numbers, at least in the early days, I had heard that your $27 a month price tag was basically just grabbed out of thin air because somebody that was advising you said that that would be a good price point? (laughs) I forget what she said, but it was
0: basically, it's either 27 or 24, I think is what it was. And that was through some research that she had done through the company that she was working at. We never validated it. We just kind of listened to it. And so 27 was the higher number. So we're like, let's go with 27. (laughs) And what was interesting is like, that was about what a record cost at a record store it was a little bit more and so that's when we started to layer in other things like the one-on-one consulting even the cocktail pairing recipe and the visual art print was to try and bring forth some value props or differentiate the product that you were getting from vmp versus you know the record that you could pick up in the store so how do we differentiate ourselves from that experience and so we picked that higher price point because we thought there was more room for error and then we just kind of layered on additional things that it didn't increase the cost, but hopefully increased the perceived value of the service. Were both you and Tyler first-time founders when you started? Yeah, we were about 24, 25 years old at the time. We were actually working together at a tech startup in Chicago. We weren't the founders, but we were like the first two full-time hires. I mean, we did basically everything. We wrote the business plan, designed the product, did a lot of the business development and all that type of stuff. So honestly, that company was very poorly run. So we both got the experience of like, what does it take to take something from zero to one? But then we also saw a lot of the mistakes that happened from just mismanagement or people having competing priorities and it being very focused on kind of the business and the numbers as opposed to, you know, who are the consumers and and what are they really looking for? And then how do you translate kind of your product to their needs?
1: Mm -hmm. How do you decide to go into business together? And a follow up question How do you decide who's going to be the CEO of this business? I don't know that there was ever a decision
0: to go into business together. I mean, we were living and working together at that point. So like we spent most, we spent probably of 24 hours, we probably spent like 18 hours together and the rest we were sleeping uh, in our rooms that were less than 50 feet apart from each other. And we were just talking about it endlessly and we didn't even think about doing it with anybody else, honestly and we I think we complement each other so well. Tyler's got just an incredible creative mind and his ability to use words to express ideas and to relate and connect with people is unbelievable. I've learned so much from him in that regard. And then I was kind of the put it all together type of person of like okay, so how do we actually do this and how do we how do we ship records? Where do we what what does that look like? And it's funny the decision for who became the CEO we were filing our like entity papers but it was on legal zoom and so we were filling out their form or whatever and then they say okay you have two partners like one needs to be ceo and the other needs to be coo so designate who is what and we both looked at each other like i don't know that i want to be ceo do you want to be ceo i was like no not really and so we did a rock paper scissors game one game winner take all and i won or I guess you could say that I lost in a way too. Because it's funny, because I, for a long time, I had a hard time, I guess, accepting the role of CEO because it felt like it was something that I fell into. It wasn't something that I had, quote unquote, earned, so to speak. And so there was a lot of like dissonance in my own psyche as to like, you know, the imposter syndrome was just ever present in the back of my mind for for a long time.
1: Yeah, I don't think that ever goes away, by the way. Yeah, it's true. I'm chatting with Matt Feeler, co-founder and chairman of Vinyl Me Please. I hope you're enjoying our conversation. If you haven't already, please subscribe or follow Shopify Masters wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review or feedback for the show. It helps our audience discover us. You file with LegalZoom. You get this thing incorporated. What was going on on the funding side initially? How did you decide how much cash was going to be required, at least for the first inning of the business?
0: Honestly, we weren't thinking much about it. We thought, maybe there's a chance that it's not going to cost that much to get off the ground. We figured it being a subscription business that in some ways it would kind of pay for itself. There was some startup expenses related to just building the website, which we just DIY'd. We, I think I did it. Just hacked together like a WordPress theme and some basic logos and imagery. Tyler did all the creative and copy and, and that type of stuff. So we just got like the truest MVP out there. When people subscribed, we had the money in our bank and we went and bought the records that we were going to ship them and then we shipped it to them initially like it was not profitable we were the first shipment we sent via FedEx so to ship a single record was like $20 so of the $27 that we were making we had spent 20 of it on shipping which is obviously not scalable and also not good unit economics so we had to figure that out in month two we were like okay let's not ship FedEx. Let's find something cheaper. And then we stumbled upon USPDS Media Mail, which is a golden goose as it relates to our business and, and sort of the OPEX related to it as well. We didn't have any money for marketing. We weren't going to spend any money because we didn't have any money. And so, you know, our thesis was, let's just make the experience as remarkable as possible so that when people get something from us, they can't help but share it on Instagram. And at that point, that was like a new phenomenon. Facebook was still cool at that point. So people were kind of posting things that they were discovering. And I think it was early on in the rise of this like niche brand or kind of these new models that people were just really excited to be a curator of. And so through that alone, we kind of generated this flywheel for ourselves that was really based on the network effect. So like I said, that first month we had 12 members. I think by month three, we had a member in Moscow. So we had to figure out how to ship internationally. And then, you know, from there, we were more or less doubling every month. But at that point, it was going from 12 to 24 to 50 to 100 or whatever. So it wasn't big numbers by any means. And it was continuing. I wouldn't say it was like insanely profitable, but we found a way to manage the money such that we weren't overextending ourselves at any one point in time. And we had kind of designed everything such that we could collect the money before we had to pay out for the inventory or whatever. So... You know, the early artists that we worked with, they were very generous in terms of payment terms. The shipping was only after we had gotten the records and had gotten the money in hand. And then from there, it was just kind of, it just kind of ran itself, so to speak. And we had a lot of people around us that were just helping us for free too. You know, some of the personal music consultants that we had in the early days, like we'd buy them dinner, we'd buy them drinks when we could, we'd give them free records or something like that as a way to make them whole. We did other things too, just to generate some additional cash. Like we did monthly listening parties at bars in Chicago's where we charge, you know, five or 10 bucks a head or something like that. And when you're in it, you just find a way to make it work. Right. And you find a way to make all the money kind of net out at the end of the day. But I will say that first year was really hard because we were spending a lot of time on it and we weren't making any money from it. So there was a question as to like, at what point does this become valuable in a way beyond us enjoying it and doing it for the love? At what point do we get to earn something from this or do we get to realize some of the value from it? And that really set up kind of the second year where we we had kind of a moment in time where we had to make a decision. Either we were going to press down to the gas pedal and, and try and really build it or we were going to kill it because it was one of those things where it was just it was more annoying than it was. Than it was valuable in certain ways. And so, you know, we had careers and we had jobs and, you know, this was taking our attention away from those things. So we had to find a way to not just make it work, but actually make it scale and make it something that could support us in one way or another.
1: At what point does that happen? And at what point do you decide to quit your full-time jobs and focus on VMP? Around the beginning of the second year, we kind of had this, you know, come to Jesus
0: talk where it was like, either we're going to double down or we're going to kill it. And we decided to double down. And then it wasn't until about 18 months after we had launched that we were able to quit our jobs and go full-time. And even in that scenario, we had taken like more than a 50% pay cut. Everybody was working very cheaply, bare bones, certainly not enough to even break even from a cost of living standpoint. It was enough to make us feel comfortable with making the leap. And we could sort of see the trajectory that we were on that gave us confidence that It wasn't always going to be like, we had enough reason to believe that, like, okay, this is something that we're going to be able to grow with. And us being able to focus on it more and 100% is going to help us get there faster.
1: Matt, you're a parent. Uh, You have children. When this was all going on, did you have kids at home? And was that ever a conversation that you and your wife had in terms of deciding whether or not you double down, as you say? So
0: I did not have kids initially. We started the business in January of 2013 and my first kid was born in the summer of 2015. So I had about two and a half years of building the business before we had children. The decision to double down on the business and quit my full-time job, my wife and I, we went for a walk and there was like two lakes around the apartment that we were living in and we would just you know do figure eights around it. And I think we ended up walking like eight miles because we were just talking about it and processing it. And at that point, I was working at, at a job in Boulder tech company and it was fine, but it wasn't what I wanted to do at the end of the day. And I was just honest, like, I'm thinking about this thing more than I am my job. And at that point I wasn't making great money, but I was making enough money for both of us to feel comfortable. I had all the healthcare benefits and all that stuff. So be quitting would have an effect on us for sure. And it was just like, we're young, we don't have kids. Like this could be the dumbest decision we ever make but if it fails, then I'll just go get another job. If it succeeds, just imagine what that could be like, who knows where it could go. And it was just always that we're young, creative enough, we've got enough skill sets that have to believe that if it fails, it's not the worst thing that's going to happen, like we'll find another job. And so from there, my wife was able to pick up a job and she got the healthcare benefits, my income was more than half. So, you know, between the two of us, we were kind of back where we started. And then it was just a let's just go. Let's see what we can do. Great
1: decision, by the way. (laughs) It worked. (laughs) Good call. It worked. You bootstrapped for the first five years or so. You get to north of 10 million in revenue. Is there anything looking back that you feel that you should have or could have done differently that would have scaled the business faster or more effectively, let's say?
0: Yeah, several things. I think the biggest one was our inventory purchasing. Processes, inventory was both in a way like our biggest barrier to growth and also the biggest risk to the business. So early on, we were growing exponentially month over month. So I think by the end of the first year, we had about three hundred customers, and by the end of the second year, we had fifty five hundred. So every month, we're growing five hundred thousand, two thousand people, and we need to buy that much inventory to then you know satisfy those consumers. But at that point, it's really hard to forecast. And it's really hard to be confident in your forecast because it's changing so quickly. The numbers are, in, in a way, everything's an outlier, but it's happening regularly enough that it feels like it's somewhat consistent. And so we got lured into this trap where I think in the third year, we kind of imagined that our growth trajectory was going to take a similar shape as it did over the second year. But we were like, ah, we're not going to grow that much, but we should still expect you know, some growth. So we should let's say we're going to double over the course of the year. And that got us into a situation where we were buying way too much inventory. And then it compounds month over month, which is sort of a, a really tricky thing about a subscription based business is if you're accumulating inventory, then, you know, you have more cash tied up in inventory, than you do anything else. And if you can't move that inventory, then it's just sitting there collecting dust. It's basically like you're lighting dollars on fire. We kind of washed over that, to be honest. and And we sort of thought that like, we knew it was an issue, but we didn't know to what extent it was an issue. And, you know, fast forward when we were thinking about raising money, we sort of had this belief that oh, it's a really inventory intensive business and, you know, we're bootstrapped and we can't invest in our growth as it's happening. We actually have to invest after we're growing. So whether that relates to hiring people or marketing budgets or just investing in certain things that might stabilize the business in some way or shape or form, we didn't have the cash to do it. But we failed to realize that like, oh, it's because we have thousands of records in inventory that we are not moving that we paid for and we failed to ask ourselves the question of like well what if we just you know refined our processes so that we were buying less we had less of a surplus in our inventory and what cash would that free up and then our pricing model too i remember also when we were raising money one potential investor was like what happens if you just increase your price like you could raise half a million or a million bucks if you just increase your price by you know three or five bucks a month and we we're like, no, 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 no. We couldn't possibly do that. We were so scared to increase the price. That also could have been true. We didn't necessarily need to raise the money that we raised. We just thought we did because in a way that's kind of what everybody else did. So there's lots of parts of the business as it relates to operations and just kind of the general cash flows that I wish we would have been more considerate with early on. And that definitely would have then given us more cash to invest in other things. And who knows what that could have been. It could have been, you know, hiring the team or moving faster on certain objectives that you know, we've only now been able to invest in 10 years later.
1: Uh, The art of demand planning, as they say. And you did ultimately raise
0: the price, correct? We did raise the price. We raised it once. So we launched at $27. We raised it once, probably within the first three years to like $29, I think it was. And then we didn't increase the price again until fall of 2020, um, which is when we did a, a big price
1: increase. I want to shift gears in a moment to talk about the format and appeal of vinyl. But before I do that, just one last question on your experience of building vinyl me, please. One of the things that I find unbelievable about the business, operations aside, business model aside, recurring revenue aside, is just the strength of the brand itself. There's probably folks listening that are just wondering, like, how do I build a great brand? What are the cornerstones of building a great brand? Did you guys have a framework for that? How'd you do it? We didn't have a framework for it per se, but I think the
0: the things that I've learned about it since then, and not to bang on this drum always, but authenticity, I think, is the first key. Authenticity, I think, comes in both sort of projecting an image of what life could look like in a future state if you decide to opt into this experience. It both comes into the voice of the brand and being able to establish some amount of connection or relationship or understanding of who the people are so they can look at you and say oh they get me they're just like me and in that way they're exactly where i am and they're going to help me get to where i want to be so it's kind of that the understanding of like who are they today being able to speak to that person being able to connect with them both visually through words through pictures through whatever it might be but then also to act as this um almost like a leader in a way or, or kind of that parent that's not you're not super far ahead of them, you're just, you're holding their hand and maybe they're one or two steps behind you, but you're showing them the path. You're kind of helping them unlock a version of themselves that they want to be true, but that maybe they don't know how to get there. You know, when I look at brands that I love, like those are the three components that I'm able to see from them is that I'm stimulated, I'm captured by the aesthetic. The language is so resonant. it so connects with me in terms of who I am. They're able to move me from point A to point B in a way that other things can't that cocktail those three things are really powerful when it comes to a brand and it's not always about the logo it's hardly ever about the name or whatever in fact people would always be like vinyl 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 me what is it vinyl me now vinyl me like it just it's catchy and that people kind of remember it it's quirky in that way but it's not like the five letter nomenclature that the valley has deemed is like this is what you're supposed to call your brand and i think that the last part beyond that is like community was always kind of a big focus for us and, and really bringing people together in and around the shared passion for music. So originally, the community was kind of owned or controlled by Vinyl Me Please. It was the VMP community to where as the business scaled, it kind of flipped it on its head where the ownership of the community became that of the communities, right? So they were able to take it and run with it and sort of, you know, imbue their own identity into it or to, to create their own connection from it. I mean, that was a really painful transition in a lot of ways for us. But at the same time, I think that solidified everything because our consumers, our members felt like they were as much a part of the experience as I was as a founder. Were you giving them a platform to communicate amongst themselves? We had like a VMP hosted forum for a long time. And then there was all those subgroups on Reddit or Facebook or we were super active on Twitter and engaging in dialogue and that type of stuff, too.
1: Very cool. Shifting gears, let's talk about format. So for years, CDs were the ultimate showcase of one's musical taste and appreciation of high fidelity. Yet CDs, for whatever reason, have not made the same kind of comeback that vinyl has. What is it about vinyl that makes it so attractive? It's hard
0: to say, but I think if you look at the evolution of the format of music over the history of time, it's all been predicated on easing consumption. It went from the gramophone to the vinyl the cd to the mp3 to the streaming etc 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 when vinyl was big like 60s or 70s or 80s or whatever it might be there was like 10 bands really that anybody knew and it, it like those were the big bands and there was a bunch of stuff happening you know beneath the surface the access to recording studios was super limited the distribution channels were controlled by only a few parties and it was like this evolution of like let's just sell more records to more people and then it became well If we have a more compact version of it, we can sell more units at a higher margin to more people. And if we have more ubiquity within the recording processes or more kind of streamlined creating music to distributing music, then we can sell it to even more people. So it became a business that was very dominated by units that were sold. And I think for consumers for a long time, it was like, great, I can get my fix. I can explore new things. I can take it with me on the go. And like, oh, all of a sudden, because I'm being fed more, my game is to amass a quantity of a catalog in some way, shape, or form. And I think, you know, when streaming came out, it's like, this is awesome, this is great. Oh, but wait, what about that experience? Or what about being able to look at liner notes and like, who's the band again? Like, who's, what's the lead singer's name? Like, I have no idea. And just not being able to have that same connection with the music that I think people just naturally kind of revolted to an experience where they could get that connection and they could sort of get a deeper sense as to, you know, what's happening behind what I'm hearing in the physical format, I think is it's the best. And there's a certain audacity that comes with the format of vinyl. Like it's big, it's a bit clunky. It's pretty inconvenient to use, but at the same time, it's beautiful and it's gorgeous. And like the way that you can play with the aesthetic of vinyl, whether it be the album art or the design of the records themselves, or just the amount of creativity you can put into the package in and of itself. It's just it's so compelling from a product standpoint. And what's interesting is like, although the format has been around for how many decades at this point, I don't, I don't know exactly off the top of my head, but the newer generation kind of looks at it and says, oh, that's innovation. Something I'm hearing can be in a physical format. Like, how does that work? That's crazy. I've never seen something like that before. Which is wild because you're like, it's actually like in a way regression or it's like it's history. It's not necessarily innovation, so to speak, but it's new to this group of consumers, which is fascinating. And I think this trend is is evident in so many different places. I mean, you see it with physical books and ebooks. Like when the Kindle came out, everybody was like, oh, the physical book industry is dead, but it's killing it now. Or like fast casual restaurants like Chipotle. They thought they were going to kill all the upscale, like nice restaurants in the neighborhood. But in fact, like people pay an inordinate amount of money to have like a, a slow dinner in a cool ambiance where they can connect with their friends over conversation. And it's just the consistency of this desire for human experience that I think has become more and more important, particularly as our lives have become more and more dominated by technology.
1: I do want to ask before we wrap up today about your role as chairman. And you've come a long way since your role of CEO. Let's go all the way back. You flip a coin, you become CEO by default. Seven plus years later, you step down. How did you know it was the right time to step down as CEO?
0: I think the most obvious indicator for me was I couldn't discern where VMP ended and Matt began. I had no idea who I was without this. And there was a lot of comfort for a long time that I found in that I could hide behind, you know, the brand of VMP, and it'd make me look cool. And there was lots of sweet perks and I loved it in so many different ways. But at the same time, I hid from the bigger questions as to like, who am I? What's my purpose in life? What am I here to do? And how do I bring that forth? 2020, I think, you know, for many, it was a really challenging year for so many different respects. And it was particularly challenging for me because, that voice inside my head that was like, okay, this isn't it. There's more for you here. Got louder and louder and louder and louder. And it was exacerbated by the cultural issues that we were all experiencing with COVID, with the social unjust, with going remote, with having to scale a business in sort of a highly uncertain time and all the ambiguity that existed in the world. And I just couldn't turn that voice off. And in, in one sense, I found myself paralyzed and just caught up in the emotion of that experience. And in the other way, I found myself a caged animal. Like I, I just felt like there was so much more for me than what I was currently doing, which sounds a bit disingenuous because I loved VMP and I loved what I was doing and I loved what we had created. It became more of a job for me, I guess, in that way than it did a mission. And when I looked at myself in the mirror, I just couldn't accept that reality for myself and tried to play forward of... All right. well, what does it look like to lead the company to this next phase of growth and what's going to be required of me and how might I get there and what do I think I need to be able to do that? And I was just like, I'm, but I'm tired, I'm exhausted. And like, I'm so far from who I am that I I, I can't even begin to answer that question because I don't know who I am. And it's a painful experience for any founder to go through. I do not envy anybody that's in that valley right now because it's you don't know which way is up. And you feel very conflicted and very confused as to where your loyalties lie. And you probably feel a bit of responsibility as to your stakeholders. It's hard to find the space to listen to your own voice. I had to really look myself in the mirror and I just had to be honest with myself as to like, where am I? And where do I want to go? And and how do I get there? And then at the same time, where's VMP? Where can it go? And how can it get there? And thinking about those exclusive of me and my role in it. Yeah, it's no it's no easy answer, but it's it's freaking hard. But I think it's an imperative question that any founder needs to ask themselves, not just ten years in or whatever it was, but like almost every year or every six months or every every month and continuing to check yourself against, you know, what you've created and, and where you hope it can go.
1: Do you feel like at any point you fell short as a CEO? When you look back in retrospect and give yourself a grade, if if you can give yourself a grade. Do you feel like you were the right guy? Do you feel like you should have stepped away earlier? Did you step away at the right time?
0: Oh, man, that's a really good question. There's a part of me that says there's no way it could have gotten to where it gotten if it weren't for the people that were there. And that's not just me. That's everybody that that played part in it. I think my role in it was critical in so many different ways, probably more so than I can even articulate. I also know that I was not perfect, and I'm not perfect. There's a lot of mistakes that I made in that journey and whether it's related to managing people, whether it's related to fundraising or just running a business and things that I look back on and I cringe in like a full body, like, Oh gosh, that hurt kind of way. It couldn't have happened any other way, right? There's no, there's no way to rewrite history. But when I look at like all the other people that have tried to do it since we launched and it failed or didn't catch the same wave that we did. I mean, the universe conspired in our favor and regardless of the role that I played in it, I played a role for sure. And that's something that I've only recently come to terms with, because I think if you had asked me that two years ago, I'd be like, no, I'm the weakest link for sure. I didn't do anything, but I I can't admit that anymore. In terms of the timing, I probably could have been honest with myself sooner. Maybe I could have been more intentional as to designing my own off ramp. And I frankly, I wish I would have. Maybe that would have happened on a different timeline,
1: but I don't know. Well, knowing what I know about you, Matt, I'm sure you did an incredible job while you were there. I certainly believe that it couldn't have grown without you. So congrats. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about some of your favorite albums on vinyl that you simply cannot live without. So give us some of your top all-time favorites. So I'm from Chicago. Wilco has been
0: a band that I've loved. My dad was a chronic CD buyer, so he'd just buy stuff that he never even knew about or had never heard but he'd buy it because somebody, I don't know, Rolling Stone wrote an article or there was a favorable review or you know, somebody was talking about it or whatever. And he bought Yankee Hotel Foxtrot when it came out, when it was officially released. And I remember listening to it and being like, this is the strangest thing I've ever heard. But holy shit, if this is what music is, like, I am here for it. Like, I am so down. Another record that I love, similar, but I actually don't own on vinyl. I wish we could make it, available, but I don't know if there's a big enough market for it. Or maybe there is, and I'm, I'm totally missing it. This album called Bastards of the Beat by a band called The Damwells. I think they recorded it in a storage facility in Brooklyn. Again, the songs are, are relatively simple. It's sort of just your basic alternative rock album. But for whatever reason, I just, I found it at the perfect time in my life. I sing, I mean, my wife and I danced. To, it was our first dance at our wedding, one of those songs. I sing that song to my kids when we go into to sleep at night. Whenever I'm like feeling down and just like beat up, it's an album I put on. It's just it's something that I I I love dearly.
1: Nice. No, I, I could talk vinyl <laughs> all day. Matt, it, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much for being here. That's Matt Fiedler from Vinyl Me Please. Thank you for joining us on Shopify Masters. Our show is produced by Megan Coyle and GoGo Zoger. Our engineers are Matt Schwartz and Miku Betlam. Benjamin Gottlieb is our supervising producer. I'm Adam LaVinter, and we will see you next time.